on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, it's the end of an era as we know it. The OC, Oliver Camacho to you, goes inside the huddle with Magda Krantz, Lyric Opera of Chicago's veteran director of media relations who retired to Jersey last week after 30 years of promoting vocal fireworks and putting out fires. Plus, two-minute drill. Would you want to be quarantined in a hotel with the singers of the world? On this last ep before Father's Day, we'll let you insert the bad joke here. Who will walk out of that quarantine as the BBC's Big Papa? <laughs> Who's your Big Papa, Oliver and Roman Gerst? Oh, <laughs> Stefanos Tsitsipas. He came so close and then he like got a groin injury. I don't know what happened, but after he mm-hmm. beat Novak Djokovic soundly in the first two sets of the final... He started to have some problems with his mobility, and he's all about chasing down them balls, just like me. And so Novak Djokovic, as expected, did, in fact, win in five sets, and it was a heartbreaker. And the speech at the end when Novak was like saying, you know, you did a good job. You could just see in his face, like, I want to get off of this platform. I need to go have a cry, but I'm a, I'm a Greek man, and Greek men don't cry in front of TV cameras, so I got to get out of here. Stephanos, I love you. <laughs> My Achilles. Weston Williams just learned so much in those last 90 seconds. I'm still reeling from the question, Oliver Camacho, who's your big papa? I don't think I'll ever get over that, George. I'll never sleep again. You can blame me for the joke. Sorry. (laughs) Ashley Hardgrave here as well tonight. That is correct. Um, This is usually for sports talk, but we're going to go a little off here. When I was in college, I was in college marching band. Shout out to all my my band Oh, hell yeah. We got PE credit in college for marching band because it was so athletic and it was so aggressive. It even counted as sports classes for our undergrad. Uh, We should give all of the sports credits for any degree they ever want to earn to the ensemble of the beautiful new film that is in the Heights. It's some of the most insane choreography, gorgeous dancing, athleticism, prowess. It's just, it's stunning. Go see in the Heights. Love it. Uh, the three Lions of England, my team, are off to a great start in Euro 2020. We beat Croatia on Sunday. Croatia, of course, who ended our 2018 World Cup run. Ooh, revenge tastes good. Let's talk some <laughs> opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So earlier today, I interviewed Magda Krantz, the longtime director of media relations also known as PR, of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Uh, Her retirement is imminent, and the Chicago Tribune did a lovely piece on her, which we will link to on our website, operaboxscore.com. I encourage you to read it. She talks about the uh, landscape of arts journalism as it's changing so dramatically in front of our eyes. Within our generation, we're seeing a whole new way of talking about opera and getting opera uh, publicity to the people. Uh, we talk about Christine Gerke's debut at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Uh, there's also some sports talk such as 
how many minutes did Lyric Opera Chicago get to photograph Michael Jordan for a photo shoot? And um, <laughs> podcast listeners, we will uh, buffer uh, this introduction with uh, an aria from an opera. She had a big role in publicizing the world premiere of William Bolcom's A View from the Bridge based on the Arthur Miller play, William Bolcom, friend of the show. You'll hear the aria New York Lights sung by Gregory Ture. And then right after that, we will hear exactly what did Magda Krantz do at Lyric Opera Chicago. stream of my job is is to connect people in the media whether they're music critics or arts journalists or general interest writers or science writers or you know radio people or tv people with what's going on at the opera house with the artists with the administrative staff occasionally and uh you know with the behind the scenes and my job has always been to either accommodate the requests that come in or to generate interest by by sort of ferreting around at the opera house finding interesting people finding interesting things going on and then calling or emailing my good friends in the media and saying would you like to write a story about and then right. taking it from there so the, so the idea has always been to just bring publicity to yeah. what's been happening at Lyric Opera Chicago. And I can imagine, I, I know we don't have to like talk too specifically, but there might have been productions or seasons even that would not have gotten the attention of the media because of their maybe lack of imagination or lack of, you know, star power or uh, whatnot. And so that- how, Then how you your... always find another story. <laughs> there are always stories behind the scenes at the grand, you know, at the, at the opera house. And uh, if, if you can't follow one path, you, you know, you bushwhack another and find somebody who will be interested to do an interview with an artist who may not be quite as famous yet as, you know, as some others, but yeah, no, there's, there's always a story. There's always a story to be found and fun to be had. One of one of uh, the more wacky fun stories we did was, you know, it turns out Maria Gulegina loved to cook. So it was like, great, let's do a food feature for the, you know, for the Chicago Sun-Times. Let's go to the farmer's market and, you know, have, have a reporter and a photographer go with her to the farmer's market, go back to her place, make a pot of borscht and share the recipe. 
<laughs> Did it sell tickets? I have no idea, but it it put out a different kind of story, you know, as opposed to the ten, you know, internationally famous tenor arrives, gets off the plane, comes to the opera house and sings, which is that used to be that used to be a story. Now not or so internationally much. famous tenor is fired from lyric opera. <laughs> that, that was a story. That was before my time, but that was a story. So let's talk about maybe one of the um, initiatives or project from Lyric Opera Chicago that did actually generate a lot of natural um, press. Um, we just heard, if you're listening to the podcast, we just heard an aria from William Bolcom's A View from the Bridge, which was one of which was a world premiere at Lyric Opera Chicago during the artist Cranick years. Correct? It was. A, it actually she commissioned it during her during her era. Um, we launched the Toward the 21st Century Artistic Initiative, which was to include two 20th century operas each season, one European and one American. And in the case of the American operas, we had three world premieres, two by Bill Bolcom and one by Anthony Davis. And uh, Miss Cranick died in 1997, and View from the Bridge had its premiere in 1999. So she did not live to see it, but it was still part of her era. So, what what was it like to put the campaign for that particular opera together? What were all the moving parts, and what was some of the like the results of the campaign? Um, I was not directly involved with the marketing facet of the facets of the campaign, um, but you know there was in that era we were lyric was still doing a lot of direct mail, virtually exclusively direct mail marketing. It was still the era of the very high subscription sales, and if you want to see a show, you better be subscribed or you're yep, not going to get remember that get a ticket. Back in the day, was it one hundred and four percent sold out? Used to be. <laughs> yep, because we would encourage people who couldn't use their tickets to turn them turn them in to be resold, and they were. And yeah, so we we beat our own numbers. Um, what did we do? Uh, we start, be, you know, because you know quite a quite a ways in advance that you're doing a world premiere. You start chumming the waters with different media people. And, um, you know, just putting out feelers and putting out calls. We also, Lyric planned a, um, so, was it that year? I think it was that year. We, um, we, we did symposia where, you know, where we would, we would invite journalists, music critics from around the world to come in to see the world premiere, but also to see, you know, Renee Fleming and Alcina and Rin Terrell and Falstaff because, you know, Lyric pro produces in rep. So we could, we could have like a four day span where people could see all that stuff. And that was a lot of fun. Um, but my, with View from the Bridge, my big victory was to approach is that for me? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I was just signaling my roommate to not talk. <laughs> I just walked in the door. <laughs> um, uh, as you may recall, the uh, the New York Times writer Bruce Weber had um, had arrived in Chicago probably in 1998 or early 1999. Um, uh, 
to to be the New York Times first national cultural critic covering culture anywhere in the country except for New York and LA. And I had known him from my freelancing days. I'd pitched him a couple of stories when he was an editor at the Times and you know nothing nothing happened, but as soon as he moved to town, I contacted him and said, "Hi, welcome to town. Maybe you don't remember me, but you know, I remember you and we want you to you know, feel right at home at, at the opera house. And, you know, we got to be friends. He did a few stories. And at some point, I started sort of tugging on his sleeve and saying, you know, we're doing this really cool world premiere, and it would be really great if you'd do something about it. And he was basically, nah, I'm sick of Arthur Miller, because he had just done a bunch of things with the Goodman Theater around, um, around one of their productions of, of Death of a Salesman. And I kept sort of wheedling and needling and trying to find a different angle in. And then Bruce eventually, it eventually dawned on him that the New York Times was very big on um, institutional profiles at that point about cultural institutions and getting behind the scenes stories. And he was like, yeah, okay. You know, as long as I don't have to write write only about Arthur Miller, I'm in. And from that point, we just took off and he interviewed the, you know, the primary sponsor of the production. That was back in the day when we had like one, maybe two sponsors for a production, not a dozen. Yeah. And he interviewed Frank Galati, who was directing it. And he interviewed Dennis Russell Davies, who was conducting it. And he interviewed the artists and he sat in on rehearsals. And he said, you know, I'm not a I'm not an opera guy. I'm a theater guy. I mean, I ask lots of dumb questions. I'm a theater guy and a sports guy. And um, he he did a brilliant piece of invet of explanatory journalism. And it was a nine part series in the New oh York Times, nine parts. And <laughs> this was the same season that um, the Met was doing the world premiere of Great Gatsby. They got one piece in the magazine. That's all. Hmm. The management at the Met was a little <laughs> not happy that <laughs> the hometown paper was giving nine you know, like a nine part series which included the opening night and the closing night of the of the show well i want to put a pin in the idea of print media but let's jump ahead like 15 years ish to mm -hmm. the world premiere of jimmy lopez's bel canto which starred danielle world. which starred danielle denise um and also had a young anthony roth costanzo and mm -hmm. an unheard of Janae Bridges, who is now mm -hmm. taking over the world. <laughs> yep. Um, what was that came campaign like? Uh, how is that different to uh, View from a Bridge, from the Bridge? Considering um, the media landscape, especially, but also I mean, the Opera House and the audiences and what it takes to actually, you know, get people to come to the opera. Oof, boy, well, it was a much, it was 19, 2015, we, you know, we're fully in the digital world, we're fully in the internet, we're fully invested in the new millennium. 1999, not so much. I don't think our photographers were doing digital photography yet, because the management at that time liked to look at black and white prints and uh, color slides. So that was different. Um, <laughs> 
we got we got pretty decent national international turnout for bel canto um partly because of the topicality partly because of ann patchett um being being the author of the original you know the original story partly because of the renee fleming connection and she of course had championed this project and championed jimmy uh it was i'm trying i mean i'm sorry the the campaign basically involved doing the same things which is how many interviews can we arrange for the varying artists how you know are we able to invite media media um observers into rehearsals to get a sense of what's you know what's in store without giving giving it away um and we we also had the the complication but also the benefit that that it was being uh filmed for um pbs for, yeah. yeah for pbs great performances so that meant having to juggle photo schedules and you know rehearsals around the needs of this you know massive massive tv presence which was very exciting but also very complicating you know, I mean, it just you you just have to think in ways that you're not used to used to thinking. Well, in this wonderful article that uh, Chicago Tribune published uh, last, I guess, over the weekend uh, as sort of your exit interview, since you are you have announced your retirement, which is imminent or eminent, imminent, eminent, um, imminent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, Chris Jones describes you as an unflappable problem solver. Uh, do you have any anecdotes for us about what it means to problem solve like Kerry Washington and the scandal or something like that? <laughs> if only. <laughs> oh, it, there, there are, I, I, there are so many, there are so many challenges or situations that have to be solved in the course of any day or week or month at the opera house it's it's kind of you know and and some of them are small you know a reporter shows up and he doesn't have a pen you give him you know you give him your pen um and not a reporter but a, a critic uh or you discover that um one of the critics has been issued a ticket it, you know, in a seat that's already occupied by somebody else, and that person is not about to move, and the critic is not happy, and you know, things like that have to be handled. Yes, uh, gracefully, <laughs> with as much grace as can be mustered. Um, it helps to know all the ushers, and for many years, I knew them all very well, and could always, uh, virtually always, find. An accommodation or a critic arrives after the curtain has gone up after the doors have closed and you know you get a bit of don't you know who i am and it's like yes and you're late nevertheless <laughs> that person needs to be seated so it's a matter of finding you know the house manager or an usher who can say oh in box 22 there's a couple of seats in the back you can slip in there hmm problem solved more or less 
for those of you who are not familiar with Lyric Opera Chicago, they are very strict with curtain times. <laughs> we we have been. We're getting a little a little more friendly and flexible, but the the basic attitude is you know, you've paid a certain amount of money for the experience of being in the theater. You've gotten there on time. You don't want somebody crossing across your lap and interfering right. with your experience because they couldn't get there on time. Right. And also with some shows that might even be brushing up against like union rules for the orchestra. And if like you start late, that's what's going to make this show go into overtime. Yeah. And you yeah. just cost the opera house like a million dollars. We do we late. do not hold it once. I mean, once in a while, if there's like an unexpected, all the bridges are open and people really physically cannot get to the opera house, the curtain may be held for five minutes. You know, stuff stuff happens. Um, we have often had Sunday matinees scheduled on um, marathon, Chicago marathon days. That's been fun. Um, <laughs> I mean, fortunately, in the era of telecommunications and emails and everything else, we get notices from the city. We can send advisories to patrons very efficiently, you know, ahead of the anticipated problem and say, plan, you know, plan your trip accordingly, plan your travel in such a way that you won't get here 20 minutes late and be mad at us. Right. We warned you. So um, <laughs> we, try. We, we did touch upon this topic of, um, you know, print media and newspapers and Chicago, you know, for a long time has had arts critics at both the Sun-Times and the mm -hmm. Chicago Tribune. And we know that all of these newspapers are being bought by giant corporations and, you know, their budgets are slashed and they're, you know, they're downsizing and um, yeah, we're losing just right before our eyes, we're losing this coverage from, you know, major institutions and from respected journalists. And now we see, um, you know, what's coming in its place, the, what's filling the vacuum are like, the bloggers and the frankly the podcasts and you know and social media and everybody is a critic um, and some some of those everybody's are wonderful and some you know could use a little polishing first off i do want to say do not abandon all hope quite yet although the sun times no longer has a a full-time on staff critic they do have a dedicated arts editor in Miriam Denuncio, and she does assign a dedicated freelance writer, Kyle McMillan, who has a solid long background in in classical music writing. I think he was he was a critic at the um, Denver Post for a while, and he's been in Chicago for a long time. He writes for several publications, and um, he you know he he gives coverage he does he reviews he does occasional features as their limited column inches will allow but they they do you know attention is being paid for which we are grateful and at the chicago tribune of course howard reich has has taken a buyout and has left the building chris jones will be reviewing 
um, in addition to the, the you know the theaters that he chooses to review as they reopen he will be reviewing lyric productions to my is my understanding and um, and other major cultural cultural offerings and there is a very <clears throat> excuse me a very talented freelancer who is also on tap at the at the Chicago Tribune um, Hannah Edgar and they will they are already doing a fair bit of uh, classical cultural writing and reviewing but so, the writing is on the wall I mean yes we the, yeah these, I'm, the, I'm trying to keep hope alive <laughs> come on Oliver work with me <laughs> but, I mean but yeah I, it, ain't, it ain't the way it used to be and can you characterize why that might be uh, a problem for uh, getting information to the public? I, I mean, it's every cultural organization. I mean, the, theaters, I, the challenge for theaters is there are so many theaters in town that you know you can't possibly review everything they're doing. Opera companies, we've got, we've actually got quite a few opera companies in town, which is thrilling and delightful. But um, elbowing in between the TV reviews and the movie reviews and the sports and whatever else is still covered in the major papers is, it's challenging. And finding ways to make what, what we do to, to reveal to those who don't know what we do that actually it's engaging, it's interesting. And if you've never gone to see an opera, it's a new experience, even if it's an old piece of music. So we work it. So there is that thing about, you know, getting neophytes into the opera house, but there's also, because now there's so many ways to get your message out there, the internet is able to find those very specific audiences who don't need to be told that they should come to the opera, that want that, that information that's a bit more curated for them, uh, that might give them details about whatever, what Anna Trepko is wearing, you know, which I could care less, but you know, mm -hmm. um, is it the job of an opera company like Lyric Opera Chicago to find all of those venues and to have people who can create content for all of those paths that people come to opera? Oh, good God. Uh, <laughs> I will say that we, we have a social media manager who was literally born on the day I started at Lyric. <laughs> she, she is brilliant and fabulous she is an old enough soul to get opera but she also 100 percent gets contemporary culture and contemporary media and social media and all of those things and she does a terrific job of both bringing in strands you know you know social social media pop culture strands and also putting out content that says hey look at this way in which we connect to to the other things you're interested in come check us out and 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 not overtly some of it's just fun and playful and engaging but we have and and actually the pandemic during the pandemic we have been generating terrific amounts of content more than even more than during a regular 
season because there was no regular season to attend. And um, our, our team has done a great job of getting the word out about, you know, it's not what you think it is and it's worth checking out and um, getting into conversations and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of opera companies have had to figure out how to have more of an online presence. And it's oh, not, yeah. it's not our forte, you know, it's not. Well, our, it's our medium. San Francisco was on it right at the start. And Lyric was late to the game. But once we got into the game, we got in, we got in hard. And the re realization came actually several years ago that, you know, because already, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years ago, it's like, okay, the media landscape's changing and there's this internet and there's cable TV and there's all these other things vying for people's attention and time. How, you know, how, how do we publicize ourselves? And the realization came to Lyric and to a lot of other companies. You basically have to create your own content, whether it's through blogging or through email newsletters or whatever. You have to profile your own artists because, you know, the Tribune doesn't have the bandwidth to do that anymore. Yep. The Sun-Times doesn't have the bandwidth. I mean, back, back in the last millennium, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I used to be able to play so many fabulous fun profiles of you know mostly principal artists but sometimes behind the scenes people showing you know showing them in preparation for a new role or whatever you know big features in the tempo section which no longer exists and uh it, it was it was awesome and all of that's gone away so we got to do it ourselves Yep, generating and, your own content and generating, yeah. yeah. So we do our, you know, I mean, we've been doing. But you could also own. amplify the content that the artists create themselves. If, of course, and we yeah. do. We do a lot of amplifying, and because so many artists are, you know, just huge, huge on social media, and are very smart about doing their own, you know, doing their own social media, we funnel that into our audience. We find ways to spin it or reshape it or whatever, and um, yeah. No, it's very symbi it's very symbiotic. And in some ways, it it's it's it might be easier than the old media model because the dialogue is between the opera company and the artist, and we're here for you. And there's no hidden agenda or gotcha moments or you know, okay, I've got ideas about what opera is and I'm just going to, you know, color by numbers and you know. Like right. that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just went off on a complete tangent. No, no, I, I I was there with you. Okay. Um, so Chicago is a big sports city. Oh yeah. Uh, and um, I remember there used to be this thing called Opera Thon. Oh uh, gosh, yes. Where it was like a 24 hours or something. It felt like 24 hours, you know, phonathon broadcast on the classical radio station, and you would have celebrities drop in. I remember there was one year. Or I think Michael Jordan was a big part of that. Was it Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan was. <sighs> At least he was on the cover was, of the brochure. Yeah, he was on the cover of the brochure. <laughs> like Elizabeth Futrell the, or something. Yeah, no, there was, um, no, in that case, it was Michael Jordan and Artist Kranich. Okay. And he, oh my God, that was a story. Um, he had just come off uh, the court, you know, from a practice. And apparently, you know, Lyric had set up 
lyrics photographer had set up, uh, you know, a, a makeshift set that he could just walk on and be with artist Cranick. And he's, you know, sweating and there's like, here, put on the sweatshirt. <laughs> and uh, what's his name? Um, Jackson, the uh, Phil Jackson's Phil dog. Apparently it, it, they had set up their studio in the kitchen. The dog runs through the studio, knocks over lights. The photographer sees his life going before his eyes. It's like, oh God, my light is going to hit Michael Jordan and I'm going to kill him. And yeah, <laughs> didn't happen. But Jordan gave him three minutes to do to do the picture because he had a golf date with his dad. Oh, <laughs> uh, and and the picture is brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, no, the the conceit back then was find a really famous Chicagoan to pose for the opera thon cover. So one year it was, you know, it was um, Ann Landers. Uh, one year it was Daly and uh, Jim, you know, uh, Mayor Daly II and Jim Thompson. You know, it was stuff like that. They didn't show up in the studio. They just showed up, you know, showed up to essentially lend cred to what we were doing. Well, in more recent years, everybody knows about uh, Paul Gazol. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And Thank you for remembering the very, name because very... I couldn't, I couldn't remember. <laughs> Did you have anything to do with getting the word out that uh, Paul is a fan of opera? <laughs> and if oh, yeah. so, does he get tickets in exchange? And where do you put him? He's like seven feet tall. You put him at the break at row AA. Okay, yes. That's the only place you can put him. I think he might have sat in boxes occasionally. He was my former boss's special project. So I didn't, I didn't get to handle him very much she took care of you know getting him his tickets and making whatever media hay she could but uh but yeah we we actually and then we had a couple other chicago bulls who were who were big fans and were always happy to accommodate them and then they got traded to other teams and that was the end of it well, I, pot- I do have another I do have another fun story. Oh, good. Sports story for you. And I'm sorry about the light on my shoulders, but what's <laughs> totally know, fine. It's the sunset. Um, uh, back in 2005, when we revived our first our, our ring cycle, the August Everding ring cycle, the um, the, the presentation of the cycles overlapped with the Cubs opening seat, opening day. And so we got our pal, Bruce Weber, who's a big sports guy and a big, you know, big baseball fan to do a piece, a piece for the paper on what makes Cubs fans like ringheads. And it was, it was, and he went to the game with a a retired AP writer from Hawaii, who was a big opera fan. And the two of them had a blast talking opera, talking baseball, and then writing about it. Nice. So Magda, as we say goodbye, um, I know. It's um, so fast. What happened? Is there a a recent production or a historical production at Lyric Opera Chicago that you just loved so much and you were so glad you were able to hear it? And maybe we can find some music to play us out. I know you were a fan of Electra, and I was crazy about the Christine Gerke. Oh, my God. The Christine... I mean, I love the music. I love the, you know, the just relentless 
drive of the music and the storytelling. It's just, and I remember the, the, my first season at Lyric, Electra was the second opera we did in a completely different pr production with Eva Martin and, and Marilyn Chow. And that, that made a huge impression. But Christine Gerke singing, making her debut at Lyric as Electra on this incredible ruin of a set, you know, representing the ruined palace and, you know, the, just the decay and toxicity of that environment. It was, it, it was so powerful and every performer in, in the production was, was terrific. But I mean, Christine was truly electrifying and I know it's a crappy pun, but it was just, <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. And on opening night, and I think practically every other performance, but especially especially on opening night, you know, you get to the end, the deed is done, she is, you know, dancing in this complete ecstasy and smearing blood on herself and collapses and the curtain goes slams down. The audience sat in complete silence for a good 30 seconds, nothing, absolutely not a sound. And then they started screaming like they were at a rock concert. <laughs> it was so freaking cool. And that was one of those, yeah, this is, you know, when, when we get it, when we get it right, man, do we get it right. And it was just, it was absolutely thrilling. And she was just, you know, was just like, really, you like me? <laughs> It was it was amazing. And it was really it was a genuinely unforgettable moment. And of course, I forgot to tell Chris about it. <laughs> <laughs> I literally woke up in the middle of the night after that interview and thought, darn, I forgot that. And that was one of my, you know, one of my big moments there. But hmm. there have been a lot. I mean, there have been a lot of absolutely. Oh, my gosh, this is the best thing. I've ever seen or heard, and I'm just so thrilled and so grateful to be part of this.
That's a lot more minutes than I thought Jordan would have uh, given. How many minutes did you watch the Westminster Dog Show, Ashley? Uh, so many, so many in all of them. We need to- How, how many is that in dog minutes? <laughs> seven times. It's seven times whatever I watch. <laughs> I'm really devastated that Matt Cummings is not with us today because I feel like he would have felt this as passionately as I did. They gave the title to the Pekingese and the Pekingese's name is Wasabi. I feel like there were a couple of other dogs that were a little bit robbed. What about Bourbon, the Whippet? What about Matthew, the Frenchie? This is this is going to be sports robbed. scandal for days to come. It's true. Uh, Matt. Since Matt isn't here, we'll just do our little Olympics watch on his behalf. The IOC mm-hmm. has reaffirmed their commitment to moving forward with the Tokyo Olympics. So as of now, they are still happening. By the time you're listening to this, that might have changed. Uh, Timestamp, uh, June 14th at 8.30 p.m. It's still happening. Matt Cummings needs that mane trimmed a little bit, I think, that he has. Uh, If you've seen the late, like the third jersey that the Cubs now have, it is utterly despicable and gross. Photo is going to be on (laughs) operaboxscore.com. Two-minute drill. That is right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Operaland this week. Agma has ratified a new contract with the Metropolitan Opera. Agma's executive director, Len Egert, said, quote, Considering what the Met has orig- was originally publicly seeking in concessions, which was around 30%, this comprehensive agreement is the best resolution for all our members. Meanwhile, the Met has released its 2020 tax returns, showing that revenue fell by $13 million for the season, while expenses dropped from uh, $313 million to $263 million. Part of that reduction is in salaries, which dropped by $41 million. I wish my salary was $41 million. (laughs) One wing of a Cardiff hotel is currently home to the best voices in the world. Per UK's current COVID guidelines, is contested for BBC Singer of the World competition coming from red list nations must complete their 10-day quarantine in the same hotel. The hotel has provided each singer with a keyboard, delivers every meal, and has placed all contestants in the same wing so as to not disturb other guests. No touching! In a world of virus guidelines, masks, and mandatory social distancing, how are the greatest opera houses getting on with business of, I don't know, onstage storytelling? The Wall Street Journal covers some of the most creative, dramatic devices currently in use, from feathers for intimacy in Glyndebourne to a Traviata set in a hospital so the chorus could wear PPE. Read all about it if you dare, operaboxware.com. That was the perfect opportunity to put on a mask, and there's not one in reach right now. (laughs) (laughs) Opera America has announced the nine recipients of the Opera Grants for Women Stage Directors and Conductors program, the $10,000 prizes to first engagements of those types of artists, directors, and conductors have been awarded to Cincinnati Opera, Glimmerglass Festival, Houston Grand Opera, Michigan Opera Theater, New Camerata Opera, Opera Columbus, Opera Steamboat, West Edge Opera, and friend of the show, Long Beach Opera. Cuban-born composer Tania Leon has won this year's Pulitzer Prize in music for her orchestral piece Stride, which draws on American, Caribbean, and West African music. Stride, which was commissioned to celebrate the centennial of the 19th Amendment, pays homage to Susan B. Anthony and Leon's grandmother. Said the composer, quote, under all these bells of celebration in my music, there is still a kind of struggle. And the struggle continues for women who conduct. 
New York Times article points out that as Marin Alsop's tenure with Baltimore Symphony Orchestra ends, the 25 largest orchestras in the U.S. will go back to having all male music directors. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> boo, actually. That's a boo! Quote, the old boys network, that's been there for centuries, said Alsop. We have to create the old girls network, you know, so that we can really be there for each other and support each other. Ashley Hargrave volunteers as tribute to make cocktails for the meeting of the old girls network. The Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama has named Su Zhang as its first ever international chair in opera representing Asia. Zhang will work to create opportunities for students from the West to connect with China and the rest of the world via masterclasses, performances, and other musical activities. Exit stage right, Opera Box Score's yellow card, red card segment. The spot began as a way to highlight opera houses that were either flirting with COVID regulations in order to produce in-person work, or canceling live performances due to COVID infections. As more and more opera houses continue to invite audiences back inside their walls, the segment died last week. It was four months old. Spanish tenor Francisco Ortiz Calarano has died at the age of 82. Known primarily for his roles in zarzuelas such as Luisa Fernanda, Los Gavilanes, La del Soto de Paral, and La Leyenda del Beso, Ortiz also performed on traditional operatic stages since 1968. Great Spanish Weston. And on this day, June 14th, two operas by Court of Leopold I composer Antonio Draghi premiered, La Gara de Genai, or Genni, in 1671, and Leucipe Festia in 1678, both in Vienna, probably in the Habsburg court. In 1732 was the first performance of Carl Heinrich Graun's Lo Specchio della Fedeltà. In 1769, French composer Pierre-Antoine Dominique de la Maria was born. In 1820, it was the premiere of Schubert's opera, Franz Schubert's Der Zwillingsbruder. It was a Zingspiel, actually. In 1877, French mezzo-soprano Jane uh, Bartori, also known as Jean-Marie Berthier, was born. In 1884, Irish tenor, Irish American tenor, John McCormick was born. In 1894, English tenor Hedy Nash was born. In 1910, Rudolf Kemper, the German conductor, was born. In 1928, it was the first performance of an opera loved by Weston Williams, The Fiery Angel by Prokofiev. First staged performance of that was in Venice in 1955, but that's not related to today, so I don't know why I mentioned that. In 1949, it was the first performance of The Little Sweep, or Let's Make an Opera, an entertainment for young people by Benjamin Britten, who was gay, by the way, it's Pride Month. In 1952, the first performance of Court Viles, The Three Penny Opera in the U.S., conducted by Leonard Bernstein. And that is your two-minute drill.
that was the uh, end of Act Two and the first Russian language recording of the complete Fiery Angel. Uh, that's Neme Yervik uh, uh, conducting all sorts of what, what a cast. <laughs> they've got uh, Bryn Terfel, they've got Kurt Moll, Siegfried Lorenz, Nadine Secunda. It, it's a great cast and a great opera and a real crime. It took so long to get off the ground in a fully staged production because no one wanted to do it except for me. And everybody who is listening today to the podcast or watching on Dallas Opera Network, apologies for how fast we seem to be talking today. Uh, and for me doing a costume change between the interview, it's very hot in my apartment because I had to turn the AC off for the sound. And I left my computer charger at work. So I'm down to about 14 minutes of computer time. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Man, so you, you know the episode is ending soon. <laughs> you should leave the charger at work more often because, boy, does it keep this show tight. Yellow card, red card. We hardly uh, knew Rest you. in peace. And yeah, there you go. A, a great Have segment. To, so on I brand. Am, yes, I'm going to say I'm really proud of that because I... That was one of my good ideas. I have about one every three weeks. <laughs> she did and it. that was it. She finally did it. <laughs> I did it. So there are some interesting stats uh, on the ratification of the um, new contract. Mm-hmm. Um, most people, most of the groups, though, so the groups that are that that, that are broken down, at least on Opera Wire, uh, <laughs> which is a source for many of our stories, by the way, uh, regular chorus, extra chorus, dancers, staff performers, stage directors, stage managers, and soloists. So in total, they comprise four hundred and fifty eight votes. Guess which was the biggest block of no votes to this new contract? I mean, far away, it was the soloist. Yes, 113 no's from the soloist. They were the majority of the no votes. There were 124 no votes. And And, and this is like, this is like, you know, all the other categories had like two people dissenting, six people dissenting, and the soloists were not having it. Well, that is a, a seems to be a can of worms and a conversation we can have probably for another day. I know that Lizette when will- when we're not running out of battery power, exactly. <laughs> um, there has been some anti Lizette Oropesa um, sentiment uh, in the singer network because of her stance, uh, and I don't I don't want to like open that can of beans and not eat those beans. So we'll have to investigate those beans. No beans today. <laughs> yeah, so no beans. later on. <laughs> Speaking of numbers, though, I do want to bring up uh, bean the, counting. The bean counting. Yes, very good. That, uh, that was is. that was the connection I was looking for uh, and couldn't sh- find. Uh, so uh, last, uh, so Yannick Nizesa again earned nine hundred fifteen thousand dollars last year compared to the three hundred ninety-two thousand uh, prior, which you know is kind of wild considering how few performances. But it kind of makes sense because he was just getting started as music director. But the one that really blows my mind, though, is that. Last year, Peter Gelb made $1.46 million. Oh, but don't worry. It is less than he made the previous year, which was $1.49 million. Like the optics of that, like if I was the Met, I would not, I would just hold, I would pull a Donald Trump and just hide my tax, uh, my tax information because that, that is such a bad look given what's been going on. They don't need a salary. It's a perfectly good understanding for why they cut all of those uh, chorus and extras and technical (laughs) health insurance makes perfect sense. Now it's like, Oh Oh my God. Got it. I mean, that household could live on the Carrie Lynn Wilson salary alone. All those gigs that she's got. 
That's that's irrelevant though. Like, look, and I cannot believe I'm defending Peter DeGelb on this show. <laughs> let me let me just let me just say here, if you're an NFL head coach, the lowest paid NFL head coach, Kyle Shanahan of the San Francisco 49ers gets three million a year for what is essentially sixteen performances if you discount the playoffs. Sixteen performances, right? Good point. How many performances are under Peter Gell's eye? His well, last year, not very many, team. George. <laughs> Yeah, about two. Okay, um, I I get that. I get that. But in a, in a very strange year, I, I I honestly the this salary to me, it seems fair. We're gonna. I would need say to though, get beer companies to sponsor operas if we're gonna start playing with the NFL. <laughs> I would just all I'm saying is first thing you do if you're not paying your your musicians for almost a full year is you take a pay cut. That's what you do. Right, and he did to the tune of 0.03 million. <laughs> so, Weston, yeah, my salary. Do you have something to say about Tanya Leon before we wrap it up? As my computer is like, <laughs> uh, uh, I, have, <laughs> I have something to say. Yay, Tanya! Yay, very well deserved Pulitzer. Um, it's such a it's such a timely, beautiful win for her. Uh, Tom was like has a really great interview piece, with her too. from last week. Yeah, it is a gorgeous piece. Um, but yeah, on NPR.org, Tom was has a great interview with. Tanya, I encourage you to check it out. Also, in the realm of Pulitzers, uh, hooray for the Pulitzers for also giving a special citation to Darnella Frazier. If you remember, Darnella Frazier is the person who filmed the uh, the incident with George Floyd and is the whole reason that we know that anything happened. So the Pulitzers really got a lot of stuff right this year. Well done. All right, let's wrap it up. Just like Oliver says. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call. Bad call. Oliver so I was working on Sunday as the men's final at Roland Garros was taking place. So I put it on my DVR and NBC has decided to farm out the U I mean, the French open finals, which usually air on the main network to Peacock, their new streaming service. So I recorded it on Peacock and the Peacock recording app, whatever it is, only recorded three hours. So here I am watching two amazing sets of tennis, seeing Stefano Tsitsipas wipe the floor with Novak Djokovic and thinking, okay, well, this ends in three hours. So he obviously is going to win. So I basically decided I don't need to even watch this anymore. And I'm fast forwarding through the, uh, through the third set and it gets the end of the third set. And Novak Djokovic is uh, winning that set. It's like, what the F is going on? So I had to go to tennis channel and record their rebroadcast of the men's final and wade through the first 2.5 sets of it to get to the action I wanted to see and see the conclusion of the match at like midnight on Sunday. And by that point, everybody knew who had won and I had resisted looking at social media. I would resisted looking at any kind of news <laughs> so I could not know the results by accident. And what a colossal F up. Peacock, thank you so much. You suck at live sports. <laughs> hey, almost, almost as bad as ESPN Plus, which I actually paid for so I could watch like more multicam looks at the Euro 2020. And it's like one big shot of the field and then two close-ups of the number 10s who rarely have the ball. I don't get it. That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer, it's Norm Waddell, normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts on Twitter and Instagram. We're at 
OperaBoxScore. Email us your hot takes, OperaBoxScore, gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, well, it's fine if your dad says it's okay. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. Thank you to our guest, the unflappable Magda Krantz. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with the father figure in your life. We're back with an all-new show next week. You're going to get more headlines, more hot takes, and more dad bods. Yeah. Join us.